0: appreciate that introduction. It's not uh, necessary because what happens in this moment is we hide behind the Word of God and come underneath its authority together today. I love that you got to hear about the Gideons because if you've got uh, extra resources to give, give it to somebody who's giving not their opinions, not their newest best-selling how-to book, but the Word of God to people that need nothing less. And I believe that's what we all need today. I know that I do, and it's my joy to be able to be with you. Today, If you've got your Bibles, please open them to the Gospel of Mark. We'll begin in chapter 10 in just a minute. Mark 10, starting in verse uh, 17. One of the things I love about ministry is we get to point out these uh, sort of universal questions in life that everyone has, everyone asks, that regardless of whatever time period era you find yourself in, whatever country of origin you hail from, whatever uh, cultural background you have, all of us have been hardwired by God to begin to search after him by asking some of the following questions. Who am I? Why do I exist? Is, Is this all there is? What happens next? What happens after I die? If there's anything, why do bad things seem to happen to good people? Now, this is a whole separate sermon, but that question's really easy to answer. Why do bad things happen to good people? Part of the message of Ecclesiastes is that the rain falls on the godly and the ungodly alike, that bad things seem to happen to good people in part because it's this gracious reminder by our God that we're not quite in heaven yet. That you and I were made for something more, something more substantial than the current pains and suffering we also experience. But then Romans comes in and reminds us that there actually is no such thing as good people. At this question we ask, why do bad things happen to good people? The Bible comes in and sometimes gently, sometimes forcefully, whatever it is that you and I need in that moment, remind us that there is actually no one righteous, Paul writes, no, not one. But we ask these questions. Is there a God? If there are no good people, why do we believe, if there is a God, that he is good? When I was young and growing up, I, I grew up into a church environment that, uh, contrary to the, some of their best efforts, and this was not taught from the pulpit, it was sort of implicitly taught from a few of my friends that questions were sort of antithetical to faith. That wrestling with doubt, wrestling with issues of, of wondering and questioning, and we see kind of Jacob in Genesis 32 wrestle with God, that was somehow a lack of faith, and so I felt like my questions were sort of shushed, or I was given these sort of trite, kind of packaged, cliche answers, and we're going to see a young man today that is cast in a negative light by the Word of God, and in a lot of ways rightfully so, but there's actually a lot of wisdom we can gain from this rich uh, young man today, but he comes to Jesus, and he's asking one of these life's ultimate questions, and Jesus actually seems to give him a very trite, cliche formulaic answer at first. Jesus is going to give him three steps that would sound just like one of these, pot. if you go to Lifeway or Family Christian Bookstores today, you'll see a lot of these popular how-to seven steps to this, five paths to your best life now, and the message of the gospel is that Jesus is your best life now. You don't need three more steps, but, but Jesus comes in, he gives this rich young man three steps, but then he gives him a fourth one, and that's where it all falls apart for him, and if we're not careful, it's where it's going to fall apart for you and me today. Let's pray before we jump into the word together. Father, you're so good to us. You love us. You've graciously appointed for each and every one of us to be here today. God, we believe today that in your sovereign kindness, our attendance here at Grace Bible Church is not an accident to you. That there may be some here today that feel they were uh, here by accident or just passing through, or maybe, God, there's some people today here giving you one last shot. Lord, we ask you to show up. We ask you to do what you have always done, which is pursue your people. And God, as we look at the deep questions of life today, I pray that we would go to the right person, find the right truth, not from ourselves, but that it is all from you. We ask for your help in this. God, as we humbly seek to draw answers from your word. God, if these words come from myself, I pray that you would strike them down, that they would be quickly misheard, quickly forgotten, but that we would cling to your words above all else today and always. Lord, bless this church and the mission here they have in Georgetown, Texas. In Jesus' name, amen. So Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 17 says this. And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, verse 18, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. Verse 20, and this man said to Jesus, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, verse 21, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Verse 22 is one of the most chilling verses in your entire Bible. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Verse 17 starts off, but and and Jesus was setting out on his journey. Well, we should sort of pause and go, well, what journey? If you read the Bible like I do, a lot of times I want to get to those red letters to the things Jesus actually said or the action stuff Jesus actually does. It's one of the reasons that Mark's gospel is my favorite gospel of the four because Jesus is like a superhero. He's just doing stuff all the time. He never stops. He seems to never sleep. There's no birth story. Those, those are found in Matthew and in Luke. And so Jesus, in the, in the Gospel of Mark, begins not with Christmas little baby Jesus. He just begins his ministry as a full-grown man proclaiming the kingdom of God is coming. And it's interesting that in Mark's Gospel, Jesus' first sermon is not, I love you so much. It's not that I've come here to, to show you grace. It's to repent. The very first word in Jesus' mouth, are repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. There's no sermon on the mount. There's a, there's a version of that in Matthew and in Luke, but there's no sermon Jesus gives that lasts multiple chapters. He's just healing and then immediately going to teach and then immediately going to visit and immediately going to proclaim. The word immediately occurs in Mark's gospel like 47 times. Jesus is moving at this breakneck speed, but Mark 10 begins this turning point In Mark's gospel, Jesus begins to set out on his journey towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. So Jesus has done his preaching, he's done his teaching, he's done his healing, he's performed his miracles. And what we know about Jesus to be true is that yes, Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man, which means, I don't know if you have ever set out on a difficult journey, you've never sat on a journey this difficult. So Jesus is feeling all this angst, all this emotion. It's the the accumulation of which we see in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is sweating blood. There have been doctors that have studied this passage and concluded Jesus is having something like a brain aneurysm that has killed people before. He's under that much stress, that much anguish in the garden begging God for a plan B. Jesus originally did not want to go to the cross for you and for me. But he begins to set out on this journey towards the cross. And then immediately... This punk, this little popcorn fart, smart-nosed young man, comes up before him. And you know what I love about Jesus, because I feel like I'm like this guy sometimes, is he makes time for this guy. This young man is not in Jesus' original plan. His plan is to begin to go to Jerusalem, to go to celebrate Passover one last time, to get his 12 guys, one of which is about to betray him. The other 11 don't really understand anything that he's ever said ever. Jesus would be the worst youth pastor ever. He's got a small youth group. One of them wants to kill him. The rest, One of them denies him, and the rest of them don't know what he's talking about. But he's journeying towards Jerusalem. He's going to celebrate Passover. He's going to begin to institute what you and I now know as communion or the Lord's Supper. And this is his plan. These are his very last days and this young man comes in and jesus makes time for him i wonder today who is god putting in your path that may not be in your original plans who is god wanting you to make time for so our first step jesus gives in this sort of formulaic step to faith is to go to the right person we're going to learn a lot of things from this rich young man the, the first thing he does right is he goes to the right person. You see in verse 17, he runs to Jesus. He falls at his feet. This young man would have been coming from a position of power, of prestige, of of money. He would have been dressed like that. He would have been wearing this elegant three-piece suit. I don't know if you've ever been to Israel, the ancient Near East. I got to be in, in Lebanon near Syria a few months ago, and it's hot. I checked on it for you. It's still really hot, and it's still really dusty and really rocky. And so this young man in all of his elegance and power runs to the right person and he falls at his feet. He forsakes all. He doesn't care what anybody else thinks about him. How many of you today have already cared more about what the person next to you or behind you thought about you more than what God thinks about you? This young man goes to the right person. He goes to Jesus because he knows that self-sufficiency is spiritual suicide. Far too many of us, if you're like me, instead of going to Jesus, we go to ourselves. We look to ourselves, because a lot of this is what it means to be a good Texan, amen? Is that our parents, my mom, she'll be here next service, she's this tough southern lady. We used to go visit my grandma out in the country, and she'd be out there leaning up against the hood of the olds and we we'll be able to shotgun underneath a tree, shooting out crows, and that was just like a Tuesday. We're taught to be these tough, do-it-yourself, handle-your-business kind of people. But that's antithetical to the gospel because the gospel says you actually can't handle it on your own. You can't go to yourself to fix your problems, to fix your marriage, to find success. And fulfillment. You and I, we've got to go to somebody else. We've got to go to the right person. I got to spend a few good years of my life here in Georgetown ministering with uh, your student pastor, Brian Mulaney. He and I worked at the same uh, church across town. And, and Brian's a lot smarter than me. It's the reason he's still in student ministry, and they kicked me out. But but one day after I had left uh, Brian and, and had gone on to to browner pastures. Uh, I had this great idea as a student pastor that I was going to take my students to Florida for summer camp, but we were going to go to the beach. I thought that's what today's teenagers need. Jesus is good, but we need to sort of spruce them up a little bit, so we'll take them to the beach. There'll be sun and sand. Y'all's women's retreats going to the beach. Maybe you're operating out of a similar kind of ministry philosophy, but I said, we're going to take these teenagers. We're going to put them in swimsuits. We're going to put them in the ocean together and have a lot of free time and sprinkle some Jesus. Are you seeing how foolish this was for me? And so we, we go to this beach, and I love, like, uh, ninth grade guys for a very peculiar reason. If, you, if you're a man and you don't remember what it's like to be a ninth grader, it's tough. It's, they're easy to make fun of, right? But, but remember what it was like to be... 13, 14. And so these guys go out, and someone has told them that out there, out in the ocean, there's this secondary sandbar that if they wade out far enough, right as it seems that they're going to go under, there's actually the second sandbar they can sort of stand up on and be really cool because they're out way out off the shore, but they can sort of find this solid ground. And so these guys, under no good information, there's no maps, there's no radar that confirms what they heard from somebody who heard from somebody. who. Heard, they all just do like what ninth graders do because they're bulletproof. They go, oh, we're gonna go find it. And so they kind of, they sort of puff up and they begin to wade out you know, into the water and they begin to sink like you do when you leave the land and walk out on your own. And they're searching for the secondary sandbar that they of course never find because it doesn't exist. And so they all almost die. I almost lose my job and I never would be here before you today. This happens, but we get these ninth graders. We sort of rescue half of them. They all come back on stage and then they do what ninth graders do in about 2014. And I think 2017 is the same. They line up on the beach after this near-death experience of trusting themselves over every other piece of wisdom and logic. Because you know, parents, they heard you in the back of their heads. They heard you. They just chose not to listen. Isn't that depressing? Studies show that when, when children turn 11, that they, can, they can study. They know, they can prove that at 11 years old, an 11-year-old cares more about what their fellow 11-year-olds think is right than mom and dad. So if your kid's 12, you've already blown it. You've missed it. It's okay. Jesus redeems and he helps. But they heard you in the back of their head. They chose not to. So they line up after this near-death experience, and they say, let's take a picture for social media. And so I say, okay, that's fine. So these guys line up. They're all purple because they almost died. And so they do this thing because ninth graders are great because some of them are men and some of them are not. Some of them are, like I was really gangly and I'm 6'3 now, but I was the shortest kid in my class then. And so they're all just limbs, right? But some of them have, have feet that have grown. They're like a puppy. They've got these big paws. They haven't grown into them yet. And so they're like these little L's where their feet go out as high as they go out, but the rest of them hasn't quite figured it out yet. So they all line up. They're all like a buck tin soaking wet on a good day. And so they do this thing where they try to fill up this space. You know, it's bigger than themselves. So they puff out their little ribs, I mean chest, and they kind of they, kind of, they do a bunch of push-ups to get these little veins flowing. And they're like, take the picture, Stephen. And so they're shaking, and they're purple. They're purple from almost dying. They're red in their face. And I take the picture, and I got to share that next Sunday about all that God did from camp. And these guys didn't know, but I put that picture on the screen. I was like, look at how dumb your ninth graders were on camp. They almost died like seven seconds before, but all they cared about was showing their newfound muscles off on Instagram now. It's easy to make fun of them, but how many of us do some spiritual version of that? We're navigating through life away from the safety of the shore of God's love and his protection, and we're wandering out to find a secondary sandbar that does not exist, but we're trusting in ourselves other than God. That's exactly what this rich young man does not do, at least initially. He goes to the right person. He goes to Jesus. Now, some of you can't identify with that at all because you actually struggle to see yourself as, as worthy enough to trust in yourself. Your, your prideful sin is not, I think I'm awesome, but I, I actually struggle, Stephen, today to think of myself as the King of Kings thinks of me. I don't feel like I've created in the image of God. I don't feel like I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I don't feel like I am one in whom Christ dwells, and I don't feel like today that I'm worthy of Jesus getting up on a cross and dying for. That if God exists, he certainly doesn't love me, but if he did, that, that was in the past because I have screwed up life so much that there's no way God could forgive or love me. And that's actually a sneaky version of pride. That's a way to trust in yourself instead of God. When I wrote this sermon, I wrote it with a $100 bill, but I'm a pastor, so I don't really have $100 bills, so bear with me. It's a $20 bill. It is worth what it's worth, right? 20 bucks. Now, I can crumble it up, I can treat it terribly. I could rip it. I'm not because this is my lunch. But I, I could crumble it up. I could say, you're trash. You're only a dollar. You're only $5. You're not worth what the, what the person who created you says you're worth. Now, did that change the worth of this $20 bill? No. Because it has intrinsic value. That there is a, a, a body, a, a governing entity, a sovereign outside of the authority of this dollar bill that has said, this thing is worth this much. And there's no more conversation about that. You need to hear this today, friends. The king of glory has looked at you and me and said, you and I today are worth the death of his son. And there's nothing you can, that's the end of the conversation. We're invited to follow that kind of God. But to do so, we have to go to the right person. This young man does just that. But it takes some trust, and trust is hard. I've been married to my wife, Haley, for over seven years now, and I remember uh, getting married as a, as a young, young man outside of college. My parents must have been going nuts. They were, <laughs> I was uh, 20 when I proposed. My wife is three years older than I am, but, but that's, that's young. That's just young. And I, I knew that I had tricked her just sort of long enough to put a ring on her finger. And if I could trick her long enough to get into the, down to the church altar and say, and I do, I knew that she at least loved marriage. Like she loved the Lord enough to respect that covenant that she would never leave me. And so I just, I just got to trick her long enough. So we got to get this locked down pretty quick. But the one, the one hesitancy I had was not a commitment from me. It was that I had, I had some real problems thinking about, man, if like 20 years from now, is she really going to keep saying yes to me? if we've got some kids and they're doing what ninth graders do wading out into the ocean puffing themselves up taking pictures on whatever social media is in 2040 is she still going to want to say yes to me and trust is difficult it's difficult to trust in Jesus but that's what this young man does right he goes to the right person the second thing is he asked the right question he asked a really Really, really good question. Remember, he's coming to Jesus. He's running at his feet. He falls in the hot dirt and the hot rock, forgetting uh, what other people may think of him. And he asks Jesus, good teacher, verse 17, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This young man gets that posture before the Lord is more important than his worldly status and reputation. He is in awe of Jesus. He doesn't have a full understanding yet of who Jesus is, but he is in awe of Jesus, and he runs to him. He doesn't care what people think. He falls at his feet. He's he's focused on something, rather someone, that's bigger than himself, at least at first. But this young man, after his great question, in that same question, it exposes his misunderstanding, a profound misunderstanding of who God is and what he's done for him. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know this, but Life with Jesus is always received. It's, it's never achieved, it's never earned. That The gospel, the greatest message is Jesus' last words are, it is finished, not your turn, ready, go. Because here's what I know, because I've been around church a long time. I grew up in church. I was born in, in the NICU, and three days later, I was out of the NICU, done being the blue baby that almost died, and I was in the church nursery. They sort of recommend against that now. But I've grown up in church three times a week my entire life. And that's God's grace to me. Now, what church people struggle with is we know how much we needed Jesus that day for salvation. I remember being seven, eight years old and God making himself known to me in a way that made sense to me. Then I don't have this story of doubting God's goodness at 14 or 20 or 25. I know who God is. And maybe more importantly, I know who I am in light of my sin and his perfection. So I remember the gospel making sense to me because of a woman named Lois and a man named Clifford. I went and told my parents, hey, I, I want to give my life to Christ. I understand whatever that means for an eight-year-old. I understand what this means. I want to surrender my life to him. I want to commit to the next 88 years of following Jesus. And I want to be, I want to be baptized. I'm ready to, to respond to this God who's been pursuing me much, much longer than, than I realized. I, I remember that. I remember needing Jesus. But you know what I don't remember needing Jesus as much? Is when I started taking control back from him. You ever done this? You remember that day you got saved? You remember the day that we said, oh, Jesus did pay it all, but then we kind of take this all to him, my owe thing, a little bit too seriously because we say, now it's up to me. Jesus saved me. He's the God of second chances. So now the second chance is my turn to sort of pay him back with obedience, with righteousness. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm so, so glad God is not a God of second chances because you and I, we screw up second chances. We screw up third chances and 178th chances. That God needs to keep saving us, keep redeeming us he reminds us over and over again yes you were justified but now the process of sanctification comes in where we are progressively hebrews says that he is forever perfecting those who are already perfect i love that jesus is forever perfecting those who are already perfect this young man does not know that he's already perfect all he has to do is respond to god the right way The third thing this man does well is he gets the right answers. Now, this one's more a thing of bragging about Jesus than it is about him. So he goes to the right person. He doesn't go to himself. He doesn't lust lust after the acceptance of others. He asks a really, really good question. He came before the presence of the Lord more hungry than some of us did today. And so he he gets the right answers because this is what Jesus is great at. He never tells a lie. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good. Except God uh, alone. This is this Jewish idea of God is one. God is good. This is why Jewish people don't follow Jesus. Because the idea of a trinity of Jesus saying that he is God is just blasphemous to them. And so this young man, this Jesus is sort of playing into this idea. He's kind of setting him up in a loving way to trap him later. But he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone, meaning for this young man to continue in this conversation, Jesus is inviting him in to recognizing that Jesus is actually God, not just a good teacher, not just a wise sage, not just a compassionate healer. I I live and work in, in Austin, Texas, and a lot of people in Austin, this is not unique to Austin, but a lot of my friends in Austin that don't fully embrace Jesus as their Savior, they really, really, really like Jesus as teacher. They love his kindness. They think, oh, if we could just get those people in Washington to be kind like Jesus is kind, then we'd be fixed. They don't, they don't get it. Because you can't embrace parts of Jesus' teaching, amen? Jesus also teaches that he is the only way, the only path to true life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. I don't hear a lot of nonbelievers rejoicing in that teaching of Jesus calls him good. Then he goes on to say, these, you've kept these commandments. These six commandments Jesus rattles off are, are six of the ten commandments, and they all have to do with how you relate to other people. Do you notice this? He says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. All those commandments have primarily to do with how we treat other people. It's like God is giving, Jesus is giving this rich young man a litmus test for faithfulness. And saying, what it, how I judge how you love God is how you love other people. Like the proof of your vertical relationship with God today is the horizontal fruit of you loving your neighbor well. And so this young man responds, oh, I've kept all those since I was a youth. Nailed him. Check, check, check. When I was growing up, I don't know if you had these or not, but at my church growing up in the seat back in front of us, we had these little offering envelopes. And they had these check marks. Bible read. Bible read daily. Like, did you miss a day? Because if you couldn't, you couldn't check the second box. Did you bring your tithe? Did you serve this week and you were supposed to put your little check or your little dollar in there and check, check, check? And it implicitly taught me this sort of checklist lifestyle, this way of following Jesus. And this young man is following Jesus or he's attempting to in that same way. Jesus says, hey, what about these six of these ten commandments? And the guy's like, check, 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 check. I am good. And so let's say he does keep these six commandments, which of course he doesn't because there is no one righteous, no, not one. He forgot the first one. Every sin is just a sin of idolatry. It's a different phrase of idolatry. The first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. That is what sin is, is when you and me take something or someone and put it above the seat that only Jesus can occupy. I love how Jesus begins to, because this young guy is wrong. He's wrong. Jesus is right. I don't know how you respond to people who are clearly wrong, but they persist anyway. Isn't there this thing that wells up? Would you just kind of get back in your place? Jesus doesn't do that. Verse 21, this is a process for correcting people. Jesus looked at him. He loved him. And then he's going to say this truth that we're going to get to in just a minute. So Jesus looked at him, meaning as much as Jesus was already focused on his journey towards Jerusalem to the cross for you and me, he is still looking for someone to minister to, looking for someone to love, to speak truth to. You and I can know, I know my calling is to be at Austin Ridge Bible Church for the next decade to see a generation of millennials grow to know, to find, and follow Jesus for the rest of their life. And to resist the the call of materialism, to resist the call of forever singlehood and to begin to commit and to be married and to have kids and to raise children that love and follow Jesus. To essentially say no to themselves and yes to all that God has them. That's what God has called me to do. I know that, but on the way there, I'm looking to the best that I know how, left and right, to see who else outside of that initial call God might have for me to do you may know exactly what you're doing in Georgetown, Texas. You may leave this place on mission, on fire, know what your sort of marching orders are from the Lord, but God can change those. He can disrupt them. He can bring people in your path that you may not be looking for. I love that my friends Brian and Kate have done this with their family life. We got to journey with them through a difficult time in their life, and then they had Zoe, and they bring Dax in. They weren't looking for him. They knew what their calling was. It was to have kids here. It was to work at the church in Georgetown and to, to raise up a group of students to love and follow Jesus forever but they're looking left and right and God begins to put this little boy in their path in ways in which they, they didn't understand at first but they obeyed and their obedience is encouraging to me so Jesus looked at him and then he loved him some people religious people will be looking for people but not to love to correct and to shame So this guy is looking, Jesus is looking, he finds this rich young man, he loves him, but then he doesn't stop there. Far too many people in the church say, we'll look, we'll love, and then we shy away from a hard truth. We've got, maybe it's a young person, maybe it's an older person who needs to be corrected, to be rebuked. The Bible says we're supposed to admonish the faithful, admonish one another. It's not talking about non-believers in Colossians, it says admonish the people like you and me who begin to choose ourselves over Jesus, who begin to take subtle steps, away from who God has called us to be. And so some of us will look, some of us will see and will love, and then we'll stop. We'll say, ah, saying that thing would be, they'd probably think I was judgmental. Or they'll point out all this sin in my life that God is still working on me. Jesus isn't like that. He looks, he sees, he loves, and then he corrects. Let's look at verse 21 here. Jesus says to this young man, you lack one thing, go, go, so all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. Now, I don't know if I'm just a bad counter, but Jesus says you like one thing, and then he gives four or five things for the rich young man to do. And so a good question would be, well, which, which is the thing he lacks? Because we'll look at a text like this, and we'll say, ah, Jesus doesn't want me to do that. He just wanted that young man to do that. This passage really isn't about money. It's about idolatry. Well, that, some of that's true. This passage can definitely be about more than money, but it can't ever be anything less than money. Does that make sense? We, we explain Jesus' hard teachings away far too often. But he says you lack one thing, and then he gives fine things. The one thing that this young man lacks is the realization that he actually lacks something. He thinks he has his life all put together. He's got the checklist. He's got the money. He's got worldly influence. Can you imagine the 12 disciples watching this encounter with Jesus. This young guy had money, he had prominence, he had followers. This is the whole church planning strategy of if you need to go love the mayor and the the country club president, I hate this kind of stuff. But it says if you can just influence the influencers, that's not what Jesus does. These 12 disciples are watching this rich young guy. He didn't even respond to Jesus. He came to Jesus. He initiated, and Jesus essentially turns him away. You can imagine Peter. He rebukes Jesus a lot. It's kind of one of his things. Throwing his arm around Jesus, saying, "Hey, bro," he had money. We're all kind of homeless, if you don't recall. Remember that time we had all these people to feed, and we didn't have any more funds. We had to take some Lunchables, and you did that crazy thing where you fed everybody, and then we all had our own little to-go container afterwards. You ever saw that, that story? The, the boy he comes in, he's got, "Hey, I've got, I've got a Lunchable. Can you feed five thousand people with this?" And all the disciples are like, no, we can't do this. Well, then the Bible says they had 12 to-go containers at the end, one for each doubting disciple. I love the scriptures. You never catch all of this stuff. It says you lack one thing, this realization that you actually lack something. When Jesus begins a Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, his very first beatitude or blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This idea that you're blessed, you will be, that that word literally means happy. Happy are you, blessed are you, who realize that you and I bring nothing to the table that impresses God. That if you and I leave this place apart from His Spirit and you throw a hundred down that Gideon Bible, God's like going, well, yippee! I sure am glad you're on my team. He doesn't do that. Likewise, if you leave this place and struggle the rest of your life to be a person of purity, or to resist greed and power and money and sex. You follow Jesus to the best of your ability, but you just kind of follow, uh, you, you string together some decades of stumbling, but you're following earnestly. You're a, you're a lot like King David. If you recognize that nothing about our lives impresses Jesus, then you are the person who can be blessed. The one thing this rich young man lacked was this realization that he actually lacked something. So where this formula falls apart is this fourth one. Okay, so this rich young man, he goes to the right person, he asks the right question, and he gets the right answers, but what he doesn't do is respond the right way. He doesn't respond the right way. He walks away from Jesus sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Another translation says he walked away sad because he had much. This is such a heartbreaking little verse, and it's a transition into the next sort of story where Jesus begins to teach on children again, but but he says he walked away much, but he only walked away from the only thing he could ever, ever have. He made this conscious choice to say, no, I want these fleeting, tangible things like money and power instead of what First Peter calls this imperishable inheritance that God has kept in heaven for you and for me. Later, Jesus talks about money and wealth and these things as things that moths are eventually going to eat and rust will eventually destroy our lead pastor talks about money like this. We live in a very affluent part of West Austin, so lots of money. Our people go make a lot of money, and a part of our job is to help them give away a lot of money to the kingdom and the glory of God. And so our lead pastor will say, hey, you're just out there stacking money. You're missing time with your kids. You're missing time with your wife because you're stacking up money. What's going to happen is she's eventually going to leave you for someone who will pay attention to you. She's going to take half of that stack of money, and then you're going to die, and your kids who don't know you because you weren't around, they're going to fight over how to spend that half. They're going to sell your jet skis they don't care about. They're going to sell that boat they were never around to be on with you and all your stuff will quickly in a matter of weeks even be gone some of you have seen this i enjoy doing funerals because there's this chance for pastoral ministry more so than a wedding because everyone in a funeral is wondering what about me when i'm when i'm there what kind of legacy y'all been talking about legacy what kind of legacy am i gonna leave and friends it's not found in money this young man fails to respond to jesus in the right way. But Jesus is a good Savior. He never asked this young man or any of us to do anything that he himself is unwilling to do. Jesus commands us to be baptized. And so, so many of us in 2017 go, do I have to be baptized to follow Jesus? Well, the answer biblically is no, but why would you ask the question? You never find anybody in the first century asking, okay, Jesus, thanks for saving me. The very first thing you want me to do is baptism. I don't know. We see in Acts 8, this, this Ethiopian eunuch, this ruler who says, Hey, I've got this broke down chariot. There's a puddle in a bar ditch. Is that good enough to be baptized in? So Jesus commands us to be baptized. He himself is baptized. Jesus commands this young man to give away everything he has, sell it to the poor, to then follow him. This is exactly what Jesus does. Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler. He steps out of heaven, out of this perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit to come here, not to the applause of anybody, but some weird night shift shepherds and some cows. If I'm making a story up, it's better than that. Like if you go to the movies and you see a superhero story, you're not seeing uh, this origin story of this little baby born to save the world and like a cow is watching and some. you know how weird you'd be to be a night shift shepherd in the first century? I used to work at HEB at night in the summer, and we'd have some green bean. The guys that stack the green bean cans—you just got to be a really peculiar person to want to spend your time with green bean cans instead of people. If I'm making the story, if I'm making it different, but Jesus is this ultimate—he's just asking this guy to give him back what's already his. He's like, man, I created you. I was there before the foundations of the world. I, I helped knit you in your mother's womb. I gave you all this money you have, and I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Just give me back what's already mine and come follow me because you're mine. And that's the same call to you and me today. And I fear that the longer we follow Jesus, the the sort of the deafer we have ears to hear that. We begin to think, I know someone who needs to hear that. I know someone who needs to come to Jesus. Jesus' invitation is to you and to me today as is fresh as it's ever been. So how do we respond appropriately? This is the only thing we know about this rich young ruler. We never see him again. It's not, it's not like Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus in John 3 at night in secret, and then you see Nicodemus appear again after Jesus is already dead with Joseph of Arimathea, and you're like, oh man, this secret believer comes out at the time it would be the most unpopular to follow Jesus. We don't see this man ever again. Wherever he is today, he is no longer rich, he is no longer young. I would love to tell you that he appears in Acts as a leader of a house church or, or he's one of Lydia's co-business partners funding the ministry of the early church. We don't know that. This is, this is the end for him in the biblical record. So how do we respond the right way? We begin to completely reorder our life around God. And what I mean by that is so many of us, we were talking about this a few days ago with some of my, my friends at church, is that one of the curses of modernity has been that never before have people compartmentalized life as much as you and I have today. We'll say, okay, I've got a box over here, and this is my faith box. This is my, my Jesus box. I'm going to pour church and like Bible study and all the good spiritual feelings I get and encouragement in that box. Then I'm going to go to work on Monday, and I'm going to do whatever helps me succeed no matter what. Or, or I need to be in a relationship or be married or to have kids so bad, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make that happen, and that's going to go in this box. Then I'm going go, go to go to work, and I've got these passions and ambitions, and those go in sort of this box. We have these different boxes, friends. There's only one box for your life and for mine. There's one big Jesus box, and you and I can only have the things that fit into that. We completely reorganize and reorder our life around Him. And and here's the the bad news of the good news of the gospel is that following Jesus may involve great cost for you. Imagine if this young man said yes in the way in which Jesus asked him to. He would have lost everything. He would have patched up that three piece suit. He tore the knee out of, fallen at his feet, and he would have sold it off to somebody else. He would have sold off real estate holdings and properties and business and liquidated funds and assets, had a going out of awesomeness sale, and he would have sold everything. He would have been risking his relationships with the Rotary Club and all these things he had worked to foster so much to follow this homeless Middle Eastern Jewish rabbi who said he knew the path to real life. It may cost you something to follow Jesus, but what you inherit is priceless. It's forever. It's eternal. There is no perishing the life with God. Let's pray today. Father, would you help us today believe the words of the gospel to be true for us, that following you today may cost us much, but that it comes at great eternal gains, that we may lose friends, we may lose relationships, we may lose influence and money and power. But God, none of those things, they, they all of them, they pale in comparison to the glories that we have when we follow you. So Jesus, we ask for your help for this. Would you point out the things in our lives that we're putting ahead of you today? Would you show us how to go to the right person? Some of us are going to ourselves as the source of wisdom or encouragement or strength. God, convict us of that today. Some of us are going to to the acceptance and the approval of other people. If we're doing that today, God, would you call us back to Faithfulness, Would you give us an eagerness and an expectation that we see this rich young man have where he falls at your feet, doesn't care what other people think. But God, help us be unlike him and that when we get the right answers from you, which we always do, would you help us obey? God, so many of us feel like Paul felt in Romans 7, where we we know now, we know what it is, the good that you've called us to do, but we just keep finding ways to not do it. And then there's this whole other list of things that we know we keep doing that we shouldn't be doing. And God, our hearts are designed to be returned to you. And so God, help us by the power of your Spirit. In the strong name of your Son, Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen. Return to you.